Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello my good friends and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host Al Smith and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together. The year was 1962 and Archbishop Sheen released a book called These Are the Sacraments and it's still uh, a favorite for many today. Uh, there's not enough good books on the sacraments and um, again I was blessed a few years ago to uh, republish that book. Uh, Sophia Institute Press, uh, one of the big major publishers in the United States, uh, reproduced uh, a book called Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, and it contains both uh, the very popular Three to Get Married, a book that Archbishop Sheen penned in 1951, and the book These Are the Sacraments. And so uh, may I recommend that to you, uh, again, this very uh, timely book, because we all need a book on marriage and the sacraments in our home. So Again, the book Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, available through Sophia Institute Press. Uh, but I, I mention that because uh, today's catechism lesson will be on the sacraments. And uh, again, in the 1960s, Archbishop Sheen knew how important it was to uh, not only teach the faith, but leave some resources behind that people will be able to use as teaching tools. And so this 50-part catechism series that we've been sharing here uh, over the last few weeks uh, is, is that series that everyone needs to have. And so uh, this lesson on the sacraments is very important today, and so we'll share that during the second half of our broadcast. Uh, but to begin with, we're going to uh, just, of course, have a, a lighter presentation. And I found that uh, Archbishop Sheen's television series, uh, he, of course, um, tickled our funny bone. She left us with um, a smile on our face. Uh, of course, there's always a serious uh, side to each one of these presentations, but still uh, his humor and, of course, just uh, his engaging smile and his eyes, um, again, captivated an audience of 30 million viewers each week. And so uh, today we're going to share his uh, talk. Uh, it's titled Morticianers of God. And, uh, and I said morticianers, I should say morticians of God. And uh, so actually I'm scratching my head thinking, what is Archbishop going to say? Uh, but I'll leave it to you. I just, uh, this is what's, I don't want to uh, give away everything here in my opening comments. But uh, again, he will share uh, again this lively conversation. Uh, so let me invite you, as I always do, just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he shares with us from his television series, Life is Worth Living, a talk entitled, Morticians of God. 
Please enjoy. Not very long ago, my angel and I were walking the streets of New York, and we saw a man changing a tire, and he was using all kinds of very vulgar language, and they arrested him. In the courtroom, the judge said to him, would you say that you used the same language as Bishop Sheen uses? Yes, he said, I would, except that I arranged the words a little bit differently. <laughs> and so we have a rearrangement of the word God. And the subject of this telecast is the morticians of God. By the morticians of God, we mean those literary undertakers who say that God is dead and therefore they have to bury him. This is a very popular mood at the present time. Why are they saying it? Well, there are three reasons why they say it. First of all, particularly for sophomores, it's shocking. I suppose that little boys that used to write dirty words on back fences are the ones who grow up now and write books saying God is dead. In fact, there was a rector and professor, or rather president of a certain university, who on television boasted of the fact that he had one of professors in the seminary who had written a book on the fact that God is dead. He said this has brought considerable prestige to our university. Uh, no one, for example, is interested if you say two and two make four. But Ibsen, the dramatist, once said, maybe two and two make five in the fixed stars. To which Chesterton answered, how do you know there are any such thing as fixed stars except by adding over and over again two and two make four? So this is one of the reasons one is noticed if one says that God is dead. It's like, look, Ma, I'm blaspheming. Then there's a second reason, which is a little more serious. And here these writers are misunderstood. What they mean is that we are not able to get over today to the modern mind, the concept of God. It's been phrased in rather metaphysical and abstract language which does not suit the modern mind. And so God is dead in the sense that the way we present him is irrelevant to the modern heart. Now, there's some justice in this. I can remember when I studied catechism, at seven I learned that God was a pure spirit, infinitely perfect. I wonder if I really understood what that meant. And so some of these are saying just that, that we have to present our theology and our Christianity in a way more relevant to our times, more relevant also to social needs. That's good. And the third reason, here we come into real atheism. And this is what many of them are. They say, 
No, God is dead. We have to kill him to make room for humanity. Now, therefore, there are two kinds of arguments that are given today and in our time for atheism. And we will mention these two and give you the basis of their argumentation. One is the communistic argument for atheism. Communism says that God is dead. Now, the reason communism says it is because it wants to establish a humanity without God. In other words, to build a new human nature. The other kind of atheism, which is to be taken seriously, is existentialism. My angel is going to have a hard time erasing that word. I use words like that occasionally in telecast to make you think I'm learned. If I, if every word I said you understood, you would say, well, he's not so learned. You mean to say he taught in the university for 25 years? I could understand every word he said. So I have to use words like this. The argument of the existentialist is God is dead in order to make room for man. In other words, the kind of man God. So this is a man God without God. Now for the argument. The argument of communism is rather simple. Communism argues that man's true nature has been distorted and destroyed by two forces. One religion, the other private property. Religion destroys human nature by making man subservient and dependent upon a superior being. Hence, religion. Secondly, private property destroys the nature of God, a man, rather, because it makes him dependent upon an employer. If, therefore, you are to make a new humanity, Destroy religion and destroy private property. When you do that, man is free. This is the new humanity. That's the argument of communism. Of course, it hasn't worked out very well because in 1917 they destroyed all capitalism and they said that the only reason uh, there was religion was in order to defend capitalism promised the workers pie in the sky. But why is it then when capitalism died in Russia that religion and God did not die? As a matter of fact, they still live very strongly. Now we come to the other argument. The argument of the existentialists. They are concerned not with humanity in general, but with the person, with me. Why do we have to declare God dead in order to make room for human liberty? So long 
as there is a God outside of me, I am dependent upon him. And if I am dependent on him, I am not free. Now, not exactly an existentialist in the strict sense of the term, but the man who started all of this was Nietzsche, German philosopher in the last century, who coined the phrase, which many are repeating today, God is dead. Now, Nietzsche had began as a believer. As a matter of fact, at the age of 14, Nietzsche said, I had a vision of the splendor of God. that be true, then he had to come to a point, and they all do, where they say, at this moment, I will, I decide that there will be no God. And so he puts into the mouth of the madman, that's interesting, isn't it? That he puts into the mouth of the madman the word, God is dead. And he said, I am my own law. And Nietzsche, who could play the piano very well, and was a friend of Richard Wagner, was one day seated at his piano. And he stopped playing it and touching it with his fingers. And he began to pound and thump the keys with his elbows, shouting and shrieking, against the person of Christ. And at that moment, he went mad. And he who put into the mouth of the madman, God is dead, now ends his life as a madman. Madame de Beauvoir, who has written three volumes on her existentialism and atheism, said, at the age of 14, I decided to give up my faith. I will to have it not in order to give room to my liberty. And she said, when I said from this point on God is dead, I wept. Now her life is almost finished after a common law marriage with another existentialist. And at the end of her three volumes, she said, I've been gypped. Camus, one of the very famous existentialists, said, Do not say I have no love. I have a great love. It is myself. German philosophers said, If I could... Have it proven to me beyond the shadow of a doubt that God existed. I would still deny it because he would set a liberty. He would set a limit to my liberty and what I want to do. This is the new atheist. Notice that they do not proving that God does not exist, they end there. So that for, for these people, atheism is not the conclusion of an intellectual process. It's rather in the will. 
They will not to have God. It is not that they prove there is no God. Now this is, these are the two embalming fluids of the modern morticians who are burying God. Which now brings us to this other side of the question. What kind of an age are we living in? Are we living really in an age of atheism? Well, yes, a verbal atheism, true. We might describe it briefly by saying that we are not living in an age of the presence of God. We are living in an age of the absence of God. Not the presence of God. That's the age that we've lived in for over 1900 years. And so we felt God's presence. Not as something outside of me, like the camera is outside of me, but rather we felt the presence of God like, like the beloved is in the lover. There's absence. But there's a, a consciousness that I love and I am loved, and that carries us through the day and through trial. That's what our Lord said, I will come and abide in you you and me. And those who still live by that presence of God are at peace. But today we are living in the absence of God. I am sure that my angel was very happy to brush off the board all atheism and these silly arguments. Now we come to the absence. How does the absence of God manifest itself today? It manifests itself, first of all, in the meaninglessness of life. Life is absurd. And almost all of the existential are saying precisely this. It's without meaning. And so in one of the plays of an existentialist, he has two characters in hell. And this existentialist knew what hell is because he started it. It's inside of him. The French writer said, I believe I am in hell. I am. So in this play, one character says to the other, give me a toothbrush. The other one said, what do you want a toothbrush for? Clean teeth? Is that the purpose of a toothbrush? Then you mean to say that a toothbrush has a purpose? And you mean to say teeth have a purpose? And when you begin talking about purpose, then you can begin talking about goals and destinies of life, and you begin talking about God. So he said, there must be something wrong here. 
So they say, life is absurd. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. And in one of the other plays, a rather novel of an existentialist, there's a factory on one side of the river that takes great big stones, puts them into a gigantic machine, and grinds them up into little stones and then into fine powder. And then, then they are transported on the other side of the river to another factory that mixes the powder and forms great big rocks. And then when they're made into big rocks, then they send them back to the other factory to be ground up into powder. And so the process continues. That's what life is. Succession of days without any meaning and without any purpose and without any goal. And so what are they feeling? They're feeling the absence of God. They cannot escape it. They deny water, but they thirst. They deny food, but they hunger. And they cannot leave him alone. They hate. As Nietzsche hated. This is one way that their absence of God is manifested in their literature, and the other is manifested in their inability to care for humanity. They boast that they want to help humanity, but humanity does not interest them. And in one of the plays, we clothe a part. He has four people in hell. Each one is talking about himself. His neighbor wants to talk. His neighbor's not interested in what this person is saying. He only can hardly wait until he himself speaks. No sympathy. No interest of any kind. And finally, when the curtain goes down, the last words of the play are, My neighbor is hell. They cannot live with themselves. They cannot live with humanity. So they feel the absence of God and their inability to help humanity. They would like to be saints, but they cannot be saints without God. So, these morticians remind me of a story that was told me by a, a classmate of mine when we were studying together in Louvain University in Europe. He said that when he was a boy of seven, he and another boy went out into the woods. And they decided to have a little game among themselves as to see who could think up the biggest cuss word. So, he said, they started with darn. And they just worked up and up and up. And finally, they uh, began to be atheistic. And 
they ended up by saying there was no God. And then it got dark and they found out that they were lost. And then they got down on their knees and they prayed to God to get them out of the woods. Something like that may happen to our modern humanity. In this country where there's affluence, it's easy for these morticians of God to deny God. Why? Because we got so much wealth, so much comfort. We cannot picture ourselves as dependent on anyone else. We need nothing. Our bank account is full. We're overflowing with prosperity. Need God? That's our cheap kind of atheism. And even socialism tries it a bit in the conference of communistic writers in Eastern Europe, uh, one rest Western writer said to a communist, he said, just suppose the, uh, uh, there was a person hurt by a streetcar, seriously injured. What consolation would you give that particular person? And the communist said, in a socialist system, streetcars never go wrong and never hit people. Well, that was the escape. And so, just like my friend boasted of the fact that there was no God until he was in trouble, so it could be that God may leave us for a while, as is mentioned in the Epistle of the Romans. And if you ever would like to read a picture of modern atheism and its effect, homosexuality and other such things, read the first chapter of the Epistle of the Romans. It's there. And may we not be frightened again into belief. And may it not be Indeed, through a mushroom cloud that may start with a burst and an explosion and then swell and swell and swell until our human pride makes a volcano the hell out of this world. May we not come to that for in such despair and agony we will have to cry out. Dear God, have mercy on us. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, and I mentioned in my opening comments about the book from Sophia Institute Press titled Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. And it's a beautiful collection of two of Archbishop Sheen's uh, best seminal books, uh, his 1951 book, Three to Get Married, and his 1962 book, These Are the Sacraments. And so uh, this book is available through Sophia Institute Press, and uh, we have been given a very generous discount of 25% uh, when you use the promo code SHEEN25 at checkout. So, uh, again, any books that they have, um, and I, I say any books in that they have thousands of books uh, on the uh, lineup of uh, SophiaInstitute.com. And uh, not only Bishop Sheen is one of the featured 
uh, authors there. There are many other great writers that you have come to know and love over the years. And so uh, pick a few books and uh, at the time of checkout, use that promo code SHEEN25 and you'll receive the 25% discount on your order. So uh, please do so uh, with that. And my thanks to our good folks at sophiainstitute.com uh, for all of their help in sharing the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. So now, my dear friends, let's uh, enjoy this catechism lesson together as uh, Archbishop Sheen uh, explains the sacraments to us. And so I may invite you now just to uh, sit back and enjoy uh, the wisdom of one of the greatest communicators of our time, uh, the Venerable Sheen, as he talks about the sacraments. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. Because the subject of grace is so very important, it might be well to continue it a bit here and then to tell you how that grace is communicated to us. Grace divides the world actually into two kinds of humanity, the once-born and the twice-born. The once born are those who were born only of their parents. The twice born are those who were born of their parents and also born of God. One group of men are what might be called natural. The other, in addition to having nature, also share in a mysterious way in the divine life of God and in his thoughts, and in his love. Grace is so very sensitive that it is possible for us to reject it many times, even during the day. Let me therefore tell you two incidents about grace. On one occasion, I went down from Belgium to Paris to preach a sermon in a church of Paris on the first Sunday of February. I stayed in a tiny little hotel near the Opera Comique, and in a small side room there was an Englishman playing a piano. I listened to him for a while and then complimented him and invited him to dinner. He said, I have never eaten with a priest before. And I said, well, we are just like anyone else. If you stick me with a pin, I will bleed too. In the course of the dinner, he said, I have a problem I would like to present to you. I have never met, he said, in my life, one good man or one good woman. I thanked him for the compliment, and then he went on to tell me that just a year from this coming 12th of February, over at that table there indicating a table in the corner, he saw a woman trying to break a lump of sugar into a cup of coffee. He went over to her, broke the lump. She then told him how cruel her husband was, and he said, come and live with me. He said, I'm now tired of her. I get tired of them all after about a year. And I wrapped up all of her clothes this morning, left them with the concierge, 
and told her to leave, but she left me this note. The note read that if you do not continue living with me, I will commit suicide by throwing myself into the Seine. Now this is my problem, he continued. May I allow her to continue living with me to prevent her from committing suicide? And I said, no, you may never do evil that good may come from it, but in any case, what is more important, she will not commit suicide. It got to be late. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going up to Montmartre. He said, I was just beginning to think that you were good. Now you're going up to that hellhole of Paris. Well, I said, there's something else on the hill of Montmartre besides dives and dens. There is the beautiful Basilica of the Sacred Heart where there are hundreds of men every night in prayer and in perpetual adoration of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. Come with me. We went up together. He said, how long will you stay? I said, I intend to stay all night. But I will leave when you want to go. He stayed all night. And I suppose there were about 800 to 1,000 men spending the night there in prayer. When we left the next morning after I had read Mass, he said, this is the first time in my life I ever came in contact with goodness. He asked me to stay in Paris for a few days and teach him. I arranged to meet him that night. At the appointed hour, he came into the courtyard with another woman, not the woman involved in the story. And he said, the three of us will go out to dinner. I said, no, tonight I want to see you. Then I called him aside, and I said, now, you received a great grace yesterday. You got the first dim contact with goodness and love and holiness. And tonight, you have to make a choice. Either you're going out with this woman or you're going out with me. Which will it be? He walked up and down the courtyard for a few minutes and then came back to me and he said, Well, Father, I think that I'll go out with her. And that is the end of the story. Now, these impulses of grace that he received could have developed him into a saint. But it was like the story of our Lord looking over Jerusalem. I would, thou wouldst not. Now, let us take another incident. I used to do a great deal of parochial work in St. Patrick's Church, Soho Square, London, England. I opened the church door one cold epiphany morning in the month of January. The limp figure fell in. It was a young woman, about 23, 24 years of age. And I said, how did you happen to be here? And she said, I didn't know where I was, Father. I said, oh, Father. Yeah, she said, I used to be a Catholic. But not anymore. 
And I said, but why are you here? You seem to be a little bit intoxicated. What are you running away from? She said, from men, each of whom thinks that I love him. And I didn't know that I was here. I asked her her name, and when she told me, I pointed to a billboard on the other side of the street. And I said, is that your picture over there on that billboard? Yes, she said, I'm the leading lady in that musical comedy. Since she was very cold, I made a cup of coffee for her and told her to come back before matinee. She said, I will on one condition, that you do not ask me to go to confession. I said, very well, I promise you not to ask you to go to confession. She said, I want you to promise me very faithfully that you will not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully not to ask you to go to confession. She came back that afternoon before matinee. I said, we have a beautiful Rembrandt and Van Dyck in this church. Would you like to see them? As we walked down the middle aisle, I gave her a gentle push into the confessional. I did not ask her to go, but she went to confession. She is now a nun in a convent of perpetual adoration in England. And here are two stories of responses to grace. In both instances, the human will was free. In the one, there was a correspondence. the other a rejection. We receive millions of these graces called actual graces. Everyone receives them. You need not be a Christian. Every Muslim and every Buddhist, every communist in the world receives actual grace. But here we're speaking of what is called now a an habitual grace, a more permanent grace, that which creates in us a likeness that remains and that brings up this particular problem. How is this grace communicated to us? How does it get into the soul? Perhaps you've seen signs on roadways. They are often painted on rocks which read, Jesus saves. Yes, indeed he does. The very practical question is how? We have a span of 20 centuries between the life of our Lord and our days. Yes, he is God. But how does he pour and infuse this divine life and power into our souls? Well, he does it by what are called sacraments. Now here we define the word sacrament in a very broad way. In Greek it means mystery. But a sacrament is any material or visible thing that is used as a sign 
or a channel of spiritual communication. We will go back about as far as we can to explain mysteries. We might say that the Lord made this world with a sense of humor. What do we mean by a sense of humor? We mean he made it sacramentally. We say a person has a sense of humor if he can see through things. We say a person has not a sense of humor if he cannot see through things. We say he's too thick. Now, God made this world with a sense of humor in the sense that we were always to see him through things, like the poets do. We would look out on a mountain and think of the power of God. On the sunset, and think of the beauty of God. On a snowflake, and dwell on the purity of God. Notice that we would not be taking this world as seriously as do the materialists, to whom a mountain's just a mountain. A sunset is just a sunset, and a snowflake is just a snowflake. The serious-minded people of this world write only in prose. But those who have this penetrating glance of perceiving the eternal through time, the divine through the human, have what we call the sacramental outlook on the universe. Now coming up a little bit closer to our own experience, there are certain signs and events in our daily life which are a kind of natural sacrament. Take, for example, a word. A word has something audible about it, and at the same time, something unseen, invisible. If, for example, I tell a joke, and if it were a very amusing one, you might laugh. But if I told it to a horse, a horse would not even give a horse laugh. Why? Because you get the meaning. That's because you have a soul, a reason, and an intellect. The horse lacks that spiritual perceptive power and hence does not get the meaning. So with a handshake. Handshake is something visible, material, fleshy. But there's also something spiritual about it, namely the communication of greeting and welcome. Now, if I take my right hand and lay it upon my left, as I am doing at this particular second, this is not a handshake. It has the visible aspect about it, most certainly, namely the clasping of hands, but it lacks that invisible element, which is the communication of personal warmth. A kiss is a kind of sacrament. 
It is something visible, and at the same time, something invisible, namely the communication of love. This is getting a bit away from the point, but I just cannot resist saying it. Have you noticed how very much our modern architecture is devoid of all decoration? What a contrast to the cathedrals, where there were all material things, even cows and angels, sometimes little devils peering around corners. The ancient architecture was always using material things as signs of something spiritual. Today our architecture is flat, nothing but steel and glass, almost like a cracker box. Why? Well, because our architects have no spiritual message to convey. The material is just the material, nothing else. Hence, no decor, no significance, no meaning, no soul. I wonder if decor and decoration and so forth in architecture has not passed out of the world at the same time politeness has. We certainly are not as polite in this century as we were in, the, in another century. And possibly the reason is because we no longer believe that persons have souls. They are just other animals. And hence they are to be treated as means to our ends. But when you believe that in addition to a body there is a soul, uh, then you begin to have great respect and reverence for personality. Now, after that digression on the relationship between architecture and politeness, we come back to the very important point again is how do we ever, ever contact the life of Christ and his grace? The basic idea that connects all that we have said with him is this. Christ himself was the great sacrament. Because he was the word made flesh. He was the God-man. We would have seen a man. But we would have known that he was the son of God. Therefore, Christ is the supreme sacrament of history. His human nature was the sign of his divinity. We saw God through his body. We see eternity through his time. And the loving God in the form of a man who was like to us in all things save sin. Now, our blessed Lord took his human nature to heaven. Once he is glorified in heaven, as we said in speaking of the ascension, he is our mediator, our intercessor, our high priest, who can have compassion for us and on us, because 
he passed through our temptations and our sufferings and our trials. Because he is God as well as man, he is going to pour down upon us from heaven his truth, his power, his grace, his life, and how will he do it? He will not do it through what we might call his bodiness, because that is already glorified in heaven. He will do it through things, and also through human natures. He will use certain things in this world as extensions of his glorified body. These things might be water, bread, and oil, and so forth, as channels or vehicles for the communication of his divine life. Now, he himself instituted these sacraments. But why did he do it? Well, first of all, because his life is so very rich that it has to have various manifestations in life. It is very much like the light of the sun. The sun is so very bright that if we are to understand this inner beauty, we have to shoot that sunlight through a prism. And so, and when we do, it splits up into the seven rays of the spectrum. And so our blessed Lord, having a life that is infinitely rich, shoots this divine life through the prism of the church and it splits up, not into the seven rays of the spectrum, but into the seven sacraments of the church. And then another reason why he used sacraments was because this material world of ours has to be spiritualized. God not only redeems man, he redeems things. So we lay hold of material things like water and oil and bread and so forth. And we make them serve God. Too often they've been used for purposes that were not divine. We have a body, too, as well as a soul. And we get all of our spiritual thoughts, at least the beginning of them, through the senses. And why, therefore, simply because we have a body as well as a soul, should God not use things that appeal to our senses? some material signs, which would be to us telltales and revelations of this grace that he's pouring into our souls. For example, it would be wonderful if he used water to indicate that our great sin that we inherited from Adam was being washed away. Bread would be a very good sign and symbol of nourishment. Oil strengthens us in the natural order. Might also be a very good sign, too, for strengthening our souls. So as once divinity used humanity, so now divinity uses humanity and things in order that there might be 
something trans-historical, trans-cosmic, in order that there might be the divine life of Christ pouring into our souls. That is how the Christ in heaven contacts us in this day and age. How many sacraments are there? Seven. Why seven? Because there are seven conditions for leading a physical life, and there ought to be seven conditions for leading a spiritual life. Five of these conditions are individual, and two refer to society. In order to live a physical, natural life, one, I must be born. Two, I must grow to maturity. Three, I must nourish myself. Four, I must heal my wounds. Five, I must drive out traces of disease. Then as a member of society, one, there must be a propagation of the human species, and two, there must be governed. Now over and above this human life, there is the divine life. And there are seven conditions of leading that divine life. If I am to live the Christ life, I must be born to it. That is the sacrament of baptism. Two, I must grow to maturity and accept the responsibilities of life. That is the sacrament of confirmation. Three, I must nourish myself sustain this divine life, that is the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. For I must heal the wounds of my soul caused by sin. That is the sacrament of penance or confession. Five, I must drive out all the traces of the disease of sin that are found in my senses. That is the sacrament of the healing of the sick. And as a member of society, there must be a propagation of the kingdom of God, the growth of the mystical body of Christ. That is the sacrament of matrimony. And finally, there must be divine government. There must be holy orders. But the sacrament the episcopacy, and the priesthood. Now the reception of the grace that is in these sacraments is very effective in our soul because it is Christ that confers the grace. The mere fact, for example, that we turn on a faucet, water comes out. Water does not come out because we subjectively believe that water will come forth. And the divine life of Christ is poured into our soul by the mere fact that we receive the sacrament. Of course, we must not put an obstacle in the way of receiving the sacraments, but it is Christ who baptizes. It is Christ who forgives sins. There are ministers, of course, there are bishops and there are priests, but we alone, Christ, our eyes and our hands and our lips, it is he who gives the grace. 
That, incidentally, is why even though you received a sacrament from an unworthy priest, it would still be a sacrament because the sanctification does not depend upon the priest because sunlight comes through a dirty window. Sunlight does not pollute it. A messenger may be very ragged, but he could still bear the message of a king. So you see the church, the mystical body of Christ, takes care of you from the cradle to the grave. It meets you in all of the events and circumstances of life. And your sanctification does not depend upon our preaching. It depends upon Christ himself. This is the sweet mystery of life, the sacraments. God love you. Well, my dear friends, I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents on Radio Maria. And uh, may I invite you to visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com. And there are hundreds of videos and audio recordings for you to enjoy. And so, again, bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, may you have a great week, and may you bring a friend with you uh, next week as you listen. And uh, until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. <music>